Welcome to the Final Draft Podcast Summer Sessions. My name's Andrew Popel, and today in the show, we're going into the Australian Classics Book Club. The Final Draft Podcast explores books, writing, and literary culture. Each week, Final Draft broadcasts from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. And Final Draft, we are dedicated to exploring Australian writing, examining these conversations to look into the issues that drive the author's storytelling and help you discover more from the books you love. Now, at 2SER, we broadcast from the lands of the Gadigal people, and I record on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands, acknowledging that these are unceded lands and that a treaty has never been made with Australia's First Nations. All summer long, our summer sessions have featured interviews, panel discussions from the Australian Classics Book Club, a chance to look back at our literary history and have a look at books that have helped define how we read and what we think about ourselves, the stories we tell. Today on the show, we are looking at Randolph Stowe's Tourmaline. This book is now almost 60 years old, but has a lot to say about our national identity and self-conceptions. I'm really excited to be sharing it with you. Thank you for joining me across the summer sessions. We will be getting back to regular programming come February. We've got some great books coming up, some exciting new conversations, debut authors. You know what to expect from Final Draft, and I cannot wait to share it with you. But for today, we're going to investigate Randolph Stowe's Tourmaline. Join me. It's time for our Australian Classics Book Club. My name is Andrew Popel. I am the host of Final Draft. And today on the book club, we're featuring Tourmaline by Randolph Stowe. And once again, I'm joined by David Winter. He's a senior editor at Text Publishing who have an incredible range of Australian classics. Hello, David. Good morning, Andrew. How are you? Really good. I, I, um, I'm, we talked off air. I said I was gripped by this. I'm, I'm really excited to be talking about this, but I thought it might be helpful to frame our discussion a little bit. Uh, before we tell anyone about Tourmaline, there's a quote uh, in, the, in the introduction by Gabrielle Carey, her introduction to the Text Classics edition, and in it she relates a story. Uh, Rachel Ward, on arriving in Australia, was handed two books by a, a friend, uh, and she was told that these were essential texts if one wanted to understand Australia. One was The Timeless Land by Eleanor Dark, and the other was Randolph Stowe's Tourmaline, the book we're going to be discussing today. And that that sort of floored me. Um, I'm not saying I necessarily agree with it, but just the idea, it's a fairly weighty comment, that someone would believe that this and one other book will help you understand Australia. I mean, Tourmaline's dark, it's a tale of a town ravaged by drought and a crisis of faith, uh, but that it might be foundational to our way of life or, or who we are as a people. Um, but look, before we before we get into all of that, David, can you tell us a little bit about Randolph Stowe? Sure. Well, um, Stowe is a, a rather shadowy figure in Australian literature. Uh, he is a central figure and uh, no less a critic than Geordie Williamson uh, uh, places him uh, on a pedestal with Patrick White and Christina Stead. But he does stand apart from those two figures. He was uh, intermittently prolific uh, as a writer uh, but he also spent much of his time away from Australia and and not publishing novels, although he continued to write poetry. So he hasn't really loomed large in the Australian uh, consciousness uh, for um, for long periods. Really, he was he was born into a a well-to-do farming family in Western Australia. He was educated at an elite private school in Perth, and he went on to university, where he actually had his 
first collection of, of poems published in London. So he was a success at a young age. He wrote three novels, and the third of those uh, won the Miles Franklin Award. So this is while he's still in his mid-twenties. So he's a very high achiever um, early on. His life becomes more complicated after that. He uh, ends up in uh, in Papua New Guinea, and he's 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 working for the uh, colonial government there, and has some sort of breakdown. And it's never really been established um, what what went wrong. He became physically and probably mentally incapacitated, and this precipitates um, years of journeying. He ends up travelling to to England, to the US, and eventually settling in, in England. And it's critical that we understand this because he continues intermittently to write about Australia, but never to live here. His, uh, his novel, Tourmaline, that we're going to talk about uh, today is his fourth, and it was extremely divisive uh, in critical reception. Um, and uh, I think we'll, we'll come to that in that discussion. After that, he writes two very popular books, The Merry-Go-Round and the Sea, which is a coming-of-age novel, and Midnight, The Story of a Wild Colonial Boy, which is a lovely tale for younger readers, which I enjoyed as a child, and uh, many many listeners probably did as well. Those two books really form um, the basis of classic, popular Randolph Stowe. Uh, after that, he is uh, quiet for a long time and then produces three late novels, Visitants, The Girl Green as Elderflower, and The Suburbs of Hell, and they're all quite exceptional, very complex and very strange books. Uh, and that really is uh, him, probably Stowe at his finest, um, but also at a great remove from Australia. So he is a very important figure in Australian literature, but he's also, I think, a very misunderstood one. And uh, he is probably the most famous Australian novelist to have been, in some ways, foremost a poet. I think everything that every novel that he writes uh, really is, is very much informed by uh, poetic sensibility. And from your description, it sounds very much the Randolph Stowe, the Randolph Stowe, the writer that the reader may know, very much depends on the book that they they read him for. And if you haven't read his full catalogue, you could imagine very many different Randolph Stowe's. I, I think that's that, that's right, uh, Andrew. In, you've really got. Uh, it's both absolutely true and not uh, in the sense that all of the books, I think, are about faith and crises of faith. So he's one of those writers who returns over and over again to a central theme, dominant theme. But yes, stylistically, uh, they're wildly divergent. And, uh, you know, his, his, the early works are so influenced by modernism. Uh, the later works are much more uh, almost postmodernist in execution. And in between, you've got a couple of very traditional novels that appeal to a very broad readership, uh, a very, very obviously classic books. So, yeah, he's, he's really got something for everyone. And that brings us to Tourmaline. That's a, the subject of our discussion today. His fourth novel you mentioned, and I've already suggested that it's quite dark. The story of, of Tourmaline takes us into the Western Australian desert, Stowe establishes that this is sometime in the future. And we visit the town. I mean, thinking about it being the future was uh, figured as the future for him, but obviously we're not, we're not seeing uh, anything futuristic. <laughs> there's, there's certainly no phones, iPads, spaceships. But um, it is a town in a state that I guess we might, with our current sensibility, describe as post-apocalyptic. Tourmaline has no water. Many of the, the few citizens 
do not know the town in anything but the drought that we, we see it in. And while we're treated to reminiscence of Tourmaline's glory days, this is really a place of despair. But it, it often, it made me wonder, as I read, why anyone would live there. And into the town arrives the diviner. Uh, he was rescued from the desert by the monthly truck and nursed back to health by the, re- re- uh, by the residents. And the diviner becomes a, sort of a talisman for hope. He's this new person that's arrived in town with his promise that as a diviner, water might be discovered. Um, look, that's, that's not all there is to Tourmaline, um, is it really, Michael? I'm, not, I'm reluctant to give spoilers so early in our discussion, though. <laughs> yeah, um, it, it's, it's an, an almost fragmentary uh, novel. It has very limited plot. It's, very, it's almost sort of skeletal, poetic in execution. And uh, I, that is the setup. We don't, we don't want to go too far into it yet, but it, it, it very early on establishes that uh, we are in uh, a desolate landscape. It's almost sort of a little Mad Max-like uh, with a, a dash of wake and fright, uh, everyone is sort of fighting in the bar and drinking, and it's it's a pretty hopeless, helpless place. Uh, and uh, in that sense, it's quite archetypal. It, it's a, a classic site of um, former glory. Uh, you know, an old gold mining town that's that's gone to rack and ruin, and and the dust, which is everywhere. I mean, it has to be the dustiest book I've ever read. You know, it sort of swirls through the novel uh, and, you know, you you feel like if you walked on set, you'd choke. I'm going to pick you up on a couple of things you said there, David, because you've you've made the comparison to Mad Max, which I definitely felt. And then whether you're aware or not, you also said if you walked on set. And as I read, I was was captivated by Stowe's visual language. I I was transported. Um, He really does evoke the scene. Uh, It's remarkable. I I don't pretend to have any close, close uh, knowledge of the outback, uh, particularly the West Australian outback, but there isn't really any better landscape writing uh, of this kind in Australian fiction, I think. He's, he's absolutely remarkable. And uh, I mentioned Geordie Williamson earlier, the, the, the critic. He um, mentions in passing in a discussion of, uh, of Stowe that for him, mindscape and landscape are one. And I think that's what one of the reasons that it's so strong in this novel is that it's such a desolate scene, uh, and it's it is uh, absolutely uh, alive to the reader, and it's so reflective of the characters' internal states as well. Mm. And we're given this perspective through um, through our narrator, and I, f- I found the narratorial perspective really interesting. Stories told through the eyes of the law. We, we're given no other name for him. We have no other name for him. He's acknowledged as the law of the land, but this force that he seems to command seems to operate more by tradition than any weight of power he brings to bear. He's also, he's old, he remembers the better days, but his perceptions for me, they were constantly coloured by his sense of an ending. He's, he's always, I, I feel like he's just waiting. And that also made me mistrust the bleak mood of the novel. How did you feel about that though? Did you think that the law was the, set, the bleakness behind this or is, is Tourmaline inherently bleak? Possibly, uh, I think probably Tourmaline uh, in the state we find it in the novel is is inherently bleak. Uh, I think we have to be slightly mistrustful of of the law as narrator. He highlights early on. Uh, I mean, he's constantly telling us how old he is, and so we're supposed we could be sceptical about his memory going. But uh, but more importantly, he does say early on that he 
uh, he has to imagine some scenes and that some scenes have been recounted to him. So we're reading his account of the arrival of this, this figure, the diviner Michael Random, and he, uh, the law, is not witness to to everything that goes on in the novel and yet he has a number of intimate scenes between uh, two characters and he, he's either kind of imagined those how, how those scenes have played out or they've been recounted to him by one of the two people uh, in the scene so it, it is an, to some degree an imagined reminiscence and uh, the other thing that makes me slightly uh, curious about the lore and 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 what he's really telling us is that on some occasions he remembers the good old days, the glory days of Tourmaline and uh, not just the uh, the money and the success, how prosperous this, uh, the town was, but that when it had water, uh, there were all these amazing gardens and there are co- constant references to these green verdant gardens, almost sort of English in conception. Uh, and we start to sort of think of it as a colonial project, you know, that you go out into the outback and if you're just successful and have find the gold and tap the water resources, then you can create create this this very beautiful, successful place in which to live, uh, which, of course, is, uh, you know, kind of uh, not only idealised but somewhat ridiculous. Uh, on the one hand, he presents us with that, and then as we go through the novel, he also starts to allude to some very bad things that happened in the past, uh, and the, the bad times as well. And so we start to think, well, uh, you know, is tourmaline uh, getting its comeuppance now? You know, is this, uh, as you uh, referred to, kind of the end times and um, Michael Random a harbinger of doom rather than of uh, than a bringer of water and life? Yeah, and Michael Random, I don't think we've, we've mentioned his name, although I keep getting you and Michael confused. <laughs> um, Michael Random is the diviner, the mysterious diviner that we've, we've mentioned a few times. There's also a point where... Uh, the law is in conversation with Tom Spring, one of the other patriarchs of uh, of Tourmaline, and Tom calls into question really the law's, I, I guess maybe not maybe not grip on reality, but he points out that there's much the law has forgotten, and that mm. he, he kind of implies that this is just a cycle. It's happened before, and coming back to this idea that this is a maybe one of two books we could understand Australia in. Is is the law our in our very short history? Is he that sense of forgetting that this has all all come before? Every time something politically or otherwise comes up, we tend to think that we're reinventing the wheel. But how are we? That was a big. That was maybe a big statement. No, there, no, but, no. Um, I, I see where you're coming from because I think uh, the law has has morphed from being uh, a policeman uh, and a, a kind of controller, a keeper of the peace in this uh, in this town to. Uh, an old man who is, is clinging to the bits of the past that he wants to cling to, uh, mainly the the, uh, the good traditions. He's the person who organises the Anzac Day ceremony. He's the person who uh, kind of runs his hand over dusty archival photos of uh, of, of how how great the, the town once was. He Although, keeps invoking the esprit de corps. Yes. Yeah, yeah, he's really obsessed with this idea of a, you know, of a collegiate kind of place. Although then, when when he looks at one of the uh, the photos from the glory days, and he says, "There's nothing but I think it's a black cat, maybe running across the street." There are no actual human beings in the photo, and mm. so you, again, you start to wonder whether uh, he has a very selective uh, take on the past. And he keeps we we have this sort of sense of um, 
he he's constantly returning to his home. He calls it the jail, and um, you know, there's it's invoked throughout the book that in Tormaline nobody ever leaves. Well, except we find that Kess, the publican, leaves. But but when people leave, they never come back. And the law is constantly returning to his jail, which feels like a jail in name only. It's like a self-imposed prison. I think he, he talks about how the bars are no longer there at one point. And I wondered, what, what keeps the residents in the town? Do you have any perspective on that? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a good question. There are so few. I mean, we're talking about probably about eight or ten significant figures in, in the book. He does um, a roll call towards the end. And yeah, I yeah. think there was probably a dozen yeah. male names. Yeah. Uh, and a number of them are uh, uh, approaching death, I think, and they really just have no motivation to move on. Mm. And uh, the younger ones are gripped by, uh, I think it's fair to say, a sort of existential despair, and they're looking for uh, they're looking for leadership. They're certainly not going to lead themselves out of the desert, as it were. Um, and some of them are just drinking themselves to death. Mm. Which I'm going to keep coming back to this idea of why why would anyone consider this seminal to understanding Australia and the isolation, the the inertia? I wonder if at least for for some readers, this is maybe emblematic of of Australia. Do we in our do we in our conservatism sometimes get a little self satisfied and and resist change? And of course. Change is on the horizon for Tourmaline, the, the diviner Michael Random that we've, we, we keep mentioning. He morphs very quickly from this new arrival in town into a very central figure. He's, he's a puzzle that must be solved. He's, he's the narrative tension that, that has to be resolved. Um, I, 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 I found him really curious. He's invoked as a messiah and a devil. But there's a passage early in the book uh, where he's described by the law, his costume of gallant folly behind which he was indecipherable. And that recollected me to sort of a a Don Quixote type figure, um, which, again, just really put an interesting read on this. The the idea of the whole town tilting at windmills, just moving back and forth between these mad schemes. Mm. And, you know, it's fair to say, and I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that we never really know the entire truth about Random. He is both an utter fraud and and actually what he seems to be. Mm. He doesn't he doesn't deliver everything that he promises to the to the townspeople, uh, but he does deliver some of what you know. He does have some powers. Uh, mm. He he's able to divine in some senses, and he does successfully bring the town together and unify them. Uh, in a manner that becomes disturbingly cult-like, but by the same token, he was kind of goaded into doing that, and so it isn't uh, it isn't a clear-cut case of someone who comes in with the aim of exploiting uh, these people. But to to take this in a slightly sideways direction, mm. and I think it might gel with what you've been talking about, Andrew. This book was published in 1963. In, in three years earlier, Don, Donald Horn had written The Lucky Country, mm. and he has the classic line about Australia being a first-rate uh, country run by second-rate people who share its luck. And I think the idea of luck is central to this book because it ties in with faith. And the, the faith in the first instance of the the people who went to Tourmaline was that they could go into the desert and find the resources that mm. they wanted to exploit. And clearly they did for a while, 
when there was a boom. And then, of course, inevitably, bust follows the boom. And uh, they are left, uh, the people who are left behind uh, are desolate. And they're without faith. And I think there is a pretty stringent critique of of Australia and the colonial project in, in this book. And it's a pretty ugly truth at the heart of it, which is that, in essence, the second-rate people uh, are just, you know, they're, they're lucky when when it comes off, when when they find the gold, mm. and then when the when the uh, the source dries up, whether it's gold or water, there's really nothing left. You've got empty, essentially unspiritual people who uh, are, then are easily exploited by um, uh, by figures who you know who may have kind of malicious intent. Mm. Or um, as you were speaking there, I thought, or coal, or gas, or <laughs> yeah. there were so many moments there where, yeah. taken out of context, you were you were running a commentary on yeah. on um, Australia, the Australian economy. Now, yeah. also just this idea, you talked about the diviner's powers, and um, I think it's I think it's fair to say we've talked about how he's he's meant to be a diviner of water, and so the faith is in his idea that if we find water, he we can revive the town, and you mentioned that his powers are to a certain extent real, because he finds gold. Mm. And um, we haven't really touched on, I guess, the idea of tourmaline uh, having any sort of environmental narrative, but very much Australia in doubt, you can't... Australia in doubt. Australia in drought. You, <laughs> you can't get past the idea of uh, our unique environment. And the diviner finds gold, but whether whether or not he can find water is in doubt. And yeah. there's this really interesting... Um, thought process that I went through around the idea of, of true value, because at the time, and, and even today, we might consider gold to be incredibly valuable, but bereft of water, the town has nothing they can do. There's no project that they can embark on with gold without having water first. That's right. And so, the gold just goes into the bank. The law mm. looks after it. You know, he puts it in the safe and and they're just back where they were all all it really does is confirm to them that that Michael Random is the the messiah figure that they've been seeking mm. uh but of course it's meaningless the town is really no better off than it was before yeah. uh without without water and that's where Tom Spring is so important in this book and this is what I noticed I was saying to you before we were on air uh Andrew that on my second read of this book, I actually found it more difficult and and troubling and confounding than the first time. But one thing that really came home to me is t- the figure of Tom Spring, um, who's who you mentioned earlier in, when he was discussing things with the law. Mm. Uh, Tom Spring is the one figure who's really sceptical about Michael Random. And it's no coincidence that his uh, surname is a, a water source, and he has a completely different philosophy uh, to to Michael Random and to the to the other townspeople. And it's a much more understanding and accepting one. You mentioned he talked of cycles, and I think he's much more in, in tune with with the land and understanding that there will be boom and bust, and that humans need to to kind of coexist with the land rather than impose themselves on it. Uh, but when he tries to articulate his his philosophy, which I think is probably a distillation of kind of Taoist philosophy, of Eastern philosophy, he's unable to do it in a convincing, catchy manner for the law. And the law is much more persuaded by the easy black and white narrative provided by Michael Random. Mm. Uh, and, the, and, and the same goes for the townspeople who would much rather gather in a derelict church and, and uh, worship together and sing and hear the bell tolling and, and feel uh, 
like they were in communion with each other and, and hope, essentially, for the coming of water than to examine the real state of things and accept their position within the world and, and you know, adapt their philosophy, if you like. Yeah. In that sense, Spring is also, I guess, a, a quintessentially postmodernist uh, character being able to reflect on on the cycle, on the influences that have perhaps led Tourmaline to where it is, and then also in not being able to really clearly get his point across. I don't know. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, that's tiny right. little dig at postmodernism there. Um, look, I, we're skirting around, I think, um, perhaps some of the the faith based and religious undertones of Tourmaline, and maybe maybe we don't have time to do that justice, but. Let's let's just have a think, David. I mean, I, I posed the question when we began our conversation that Tourmaline has been posited as perhaps one of two books that is important, if not essential, to understanding Australia. And, and we've discussed so many elements of both the colonial project, the early early Australia, and found parallels with contemporary Australia, which is, is I guess, one thing that a classic does. It speaks to us from its time uh, about our present. Are you are you convinced that tourmaline is something that is essential to understanding Australia? I certainly think, from a literary perspective, it is, uh, and uh, you know, I think it's it's a, a a very important book in the Australian canon. Whether it can speak to a broader readership, uh, I'm not sure. Uh, when the book came out. Um, Dame Leonie Kramer, who's a, uh, a very influential figure in Australian literature, called it the wasteland with more barroom scenes, and, <laughs> uh, which is a pretty nasty knock on the book. Uh, but it is, to my mind, a quintessentially modernist book. It's, it's very much influenced by the high modernism of really of the kind of 1920s and 1930s, although it's written in the early 1960s. And I... I'm not sure whether a book like this can speak to a really wide readership anymore because it was difficult enough to take then. It's not because the messages are too difficult. There are many Australian books that are critical of the Australian character or aspects of Australian society. I think it's probably more the uh, elusiveness and allusiveness of this book. Uh, it's unwillingness to present us with easy understanding uh, easy takeaways about how we might deal with the predic predicament that it describes. So, you know, I guess the answer is yes and no. I mean, it, if 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 people are keen, if they want to if they want to dive in, I think this book will tell you an awful lot about Australia as it was and the fact that you can immediately link it to to uh, coal and gas and to the to our seemingly endless fixation with uh, exploiting what we can dig out of the ground, uh, then, then yeah, it, it's certainly a very relevant book. But it is a, a troubling book and it, it, it's, it's not as uh, seductive and persuasive even as some, of other, some other books by Stowe, let alone other writers. The book in question is Tourmaline, uh, Tourmaline by Randolph Stowe. You're in the Australian Classics Book Club on Final Draft, I've been speaking with David Winter. He's a senior editor at Text Publishing. You can join us every month, the last Saturday of the month. My name's Andrew Popel. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, David. I'm thoroughly enjoying our chats and uh, we've got a whole year of Australian classics to explore. So, I'm looking forward to it. Likewise. Enjoying it very much, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today on the Final Draft podcast. The Australian Classics Book Club is a way to look back at incredible works of Australian writing 
Today, we had a look into Randolph Stowe's Tourmaline. Final Draft is recorded on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. You can stay in touch with Final Draft. Drop us a line. We are finaldraft at 2SER.com or on the social medias to search for the handle at finaldraft2SER. I'd love to hear about what you're reading, what you're thinking of the show, what you'd like to see. My name is Andrew Popel. I will be back very soon. More great conversations from incredible Australian authors here on Final Draft. Happy reading. Bye for now.